Right. Hello, hello to everyone who is joining us live and welcome to episode 86 of Podchat Live, uh, where we are talking out. The topic of discussion is knee pain in runners. And when we decided we wanted to cover this, um, only one name came up for Craig and myself, um, and that was Dr. Christian Barton. Um, by way of in brief introduction, uh, Christian's a physiotherapist. He completed his PhD in biomechanics and patellofemoral pain and foot orthoses. I hope I've done that justice. He's now a postdoctoral researcher at La Trobe University, associate editor at the British Journal of Sports Medicine. He's also involved with numerous other initiatives like Trek and GLAD, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I, I can't go on. I'll just be here all, all, all day li listing his accomplishments. But Christian, we are so delighted to have you. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much for the invitation, Ian. Um, we are just going to get stuck straight in and, and, and start talking about the, the phenomena that is knee pain in runners. If you're watching live and you have any questions uh, for Christian, just, just fire them in the comments. And as always, Craig is, is being eagle-eyed over there on Facebook and he'll sort of bring them up and bring them into the conversation as and when. Um, let's start w w where it feels uh, sort of sensible to start, Christian, and just talk about the kind of prevalence and incidence of, of knee pain in runners. I, I remember lots of historic um, literature we read would often kickstart by saying it was the most commonly injured site in runners. Um, what's the kind of uh, up-to-date stats on, on the sort of uh, prevalence and incidence of this? Yes, I think it's probably still the most common running injury that we see in the clinic. It obviously depends on your clinical population Sorry, as well and who gets drawn, drawn to your clinic. Sorry, Craig? Yeah, no, it's okay. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Something going on in the background. Um, it'll be yeah. the most, most common that gets... Um, that, that probably occurs. I think that and probably Achilles tendinopathy is also quite common. Um, and then if we look at the, I guess, the most common running injury specifically, it's probably anterior knee pain, so patellofemoral related. Um, and that's probably on a continuum where we have some people who have, I guess, earlier symptoms and haven't had it for so long and we might diagnose them with patellofemoral pain and then probably all the way in the continuum where people start to develop patellofemoral osteoarthritis. There's probably no definitive point where that occurs, um, so that happens along the way. Um, and like most running injuries, it probably becomes most common when people become more active, so it's usually of the spiking load. So we see really high uh, incidence rates in military populations. So we often see people who... Maybe deconditioned, and they go to military training, and, and then the rates can be really quite high in relation to self-reported pain. So, sort of one in three might develop within those populations over a, a military training period. Um, so, yeah, that would be the most common that we see. Yeah, makes sense. So, there, I'm conscious there may be people watching who are uh, seeing less knee pain, or perhaps less confident in seeing knee pain. Particularly, we, we know we have undergrad students watching as well. Um, so while we've got you here with all your years of experience and all the research that you've, the numerous research that you've published, um, wonder if we could kind of could kind of get into your brain a bit and, and get some gems out of there for for the people with less less experience. So. Talk us through your, your thought processes when a runner, you know, you're in clinic and your next patient comes in and they sort of identify as a runner with knee pain. Um, what does the history look like uh, or sh what should it look like? And then like and like similar question, what, what, what sort of clinical or physical tests might you do to help you kind of work through what you think you're dealing with? Yeah. So I guess the first thing when the, the runner comes in, they're describing knee pain. Um, they'll usually describe it happens with running. Um, in some circumstances, I'll also say it's causing the problems with other activities in life. And so that might be stairs, it might be walking, it could be squatting and various other activities. 
And usually if they're having problems with other activities, it's probably a sign they've been dealing with it for a while. Most people, runners who develop knee pain, will develop during running and, and that's kind of the only activity they have it in. And then they might just ignore that for a while and they sometimes only present once it starts causing them other problems in life. So that's sort of asking a few questions around that gives some insight. Um, the most common things that might come to your door would be telephoneal pain, so that anterior knee pain. Um, you might see ITB, and of course, the easiest way to differentiate those two is just the site of the pain. So uh, ITB pain is going to be more lateral, and anterior knee pain or telephoneal pain, of course, is going to be anterior. Um, whether you need to manage them differently or not is a, a very different question, and maybe we'll touch on that a little bit later. Um, we will also get some runners, particularly as they get older or if they've had a post-traumatic knee injury, they may also have some tibiofemoral symptoms as well. Um, and again, it might not change their management all that much. It can change a few things. And again, we might touch on that a little bit later. But I think the thing I'm most interested to talk to the person about when they come in is, is how they've landed in that position of having this persistent knee pain that's brought them to seek care. And most people focus in on um, maybe their shoes or maybe... We're on a pod podcast here, so they might focus on things like foot pronation or or they'll say, I've been running on the wrong surfaces or, or whatever it might be, and they have this big emphasis on that. But broadly, that's not usually the, the key thing, unless they've made big changes to those recently, then that won't change. They're running biomechanics, um, and we'll maybe go into this a bit more detail later, is probably not the reason they develop pain in the first place. Um, we know things like muscle strength are probably not a risk factor for developing knee pain. So if we look at some of the literature um, and we see and we measure people before they start maybe a, a season of basketball or a season of athletics, the group who actually develops pain, if anything, they're probably going to be stronger through their hips, through their quads, etc. So it's not strength that's going to be the cause of their knee pain. So people will be coming in and saying, oh, I've got weak hips, or I've got weak this, and that's why I've got my knee pain or why it developed. But that's not usually the case. It's usually, for me, one of two broader category so it's either some training errors and so they've been doing too much too quickly and we can talk about what that means in a little bit so they've spiked their load massively so the military example i gave you is a really good one but it might also be what we've seen through COVID a lot where people maybe did a bit of running um and they've gone from running three or four times a week to now they're stressed they're also at home with their kids and want to get out and they're running every day um and so they've doubled their running very quickly and so that could be a reason and then the other reasons are often not as obvious and we're not trained as health professionals which is bizarre but this is across the board in medicine as well in physio and podiatry to look for these things and that is things like sleep um, things like their diet um, things like stress so all these non-physical factors and so we might see a big change in some of those things in the lead up to them to help developing pain or often it's a combination of those two things it might be lifestyle factors like sleep and diet or and or it's that training error side of things so getting understanding what's happened in the past couple of months in the lead up to them developing those pain around those aspects first I think is one of the most important things because if you don't also address those things alongside any potential physical factors, you're probably not going to get a great outcome with your patient. So I place a, a lot of emphasis on often having a long, detailed discussion with patients. And I think the tricky part for most health professionals is we don't always have a long time with our patients. If we've got a 30-minute initial consultation and we start asking them about some of these non-physical factors, we may be sitting there for quite a while. Um, so sometimes it might be uh, opening up that conversation just a little bit and going into some of the things you feel more com confident and comfortable with, but don't ignore them. I think that's really important. Um, and then there's a whole other range of factors for us to consider as well. And in our female populations, it may be changes in hormonal 
factors that have led to them developing pain. So asking them about regular menstrual cycles is really important. Um, we see some of the female runners that I see will be amenorrheic when, when they're presenting and, and it's actually then getting them support and help to sort their knee pain. So I think my advice to everyone is be willing to sort of think about all these other things and at least ask those questions. You don't have to fix them. It's then having people you can then refer to to help with that side of things. So psychology if they're stressed, um, dietitian for diet, um, a women's health physio or a women's health specialist if it's something to do with, with hormonal levels, etc., is probably really important. Great, great. So the, the summary I, I sort of take from that is to sort of get an idea of the, you know, ask them the location of their knee pain to get a bit of a feel what you might be dealing with structurally. Um, really, really drill down on, on the load, the, the history, you know, the load management, the, the kind of training that, that, that presented prior to the onset. Um, and then finally, do not ignore the, let's call them the psychosocial things. Don't just be bogged down on, we're treating a knee here. We're treating a human with knee pain. Um, yeah. Before we, we dig, dig a bit deeper in a lot of the things you talked about, immediate question, are there any red flags, either observations or, or questions, where at, at some point you'll ask them, and as soon as you hear, hear a certain answer, you'll think, okay, we need to probably escalate this for a scan a bit quicker or a bit sooner. You know, are there any things you might ask where you suddenly think, okay, rather than starting rehab or rather than starting, you know, a more a sort of more conservative approach here, I just want to I just want to get a, a sort of imaging opinion or a, or a sports doc opinion, for example. Yeah, so I think um, broadly we try and avoid imaging where we can for a couple couple of reasons one is we don't want patients to focus too much on those structural things because we know they have poor relationships with pain and if they get very tied to that then they're going to look for interventions they're going to fix the scan so that's really important but if you've got a patient with maybe atypical symptoms so when you ask all the questions i've just talked about and you're kind of going through their history and their training loads haven't changed nothing's really really modified there there's nothing else in that psychosocial world going on that would trigger you to say that they've got pain that tells me something it tells me either the patient's not willing to share those things um not willing to let me know about those things or i haven't asked the questions very well or there could be something else atypical going on and in which case that's probably my trigger to say let's get some opinion from a sports physician i really trust sports physicians quite highly to do this um they're not the ones that are going to do surgery um they've got skills and knowledge around medications and different things but also often really great skills and knowledge around diet around um, hormonal levels, a whole range of factors. So I'll often get them to see someone there. The other other thing to always consider, so if it's not those sort of atypical presentations where there's nothing that you can see that has caused them to develop pain, and it's more of a typical one where they've developed pain because of training errors, et cetera, and then they've been doing a really good rehab program. So it might be the first time that you've seen them. And they come to you, and I see a lot of patients like this, and they've seen three or four different clinicians, and I really try and dive in deeply to what they've been doing from a rehab perspective. So those who aren't as familiar with an exercise rehab process, if someone has had persistent pain for, let's call it one or two or five or ten years, they're going to have significant muscle atrophy. They're going to have lost a lot of strength and conditioning. And unless they do an adequate rehab program to restore that, they won't get that muscle bulk back or they won't get that muscle power back from just running. And so I'll really dive into have you done an adequate rehab program to address that? So the first thing you can ask is have you done uh, more than six or 12 weeks of this exercise program? Because a lot of people say, yeah, I tried exercise. It didn't help. But you ask them a bit further, they say, yeah, I did these exercises for two or three weeks. It wasn't getting better, so I stopped. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing is has it actually been progressed by someone who knows what they're doing? 
So someone that you might trust to know what they're doing. Because a lot of people might do exercise programs for 12 weeks or 16 weeks or six months or two years. And I'll give you a great example of this. It might be uh, mat-based Pilates. That's a great example. People love Pilates. They feel better over the first few months and, and they improve and then they, they plateau. And the reason is there's no progression that would actually then lead to improvements in strength and muscle power and those types of things that are probably going to be important for that runner. So it's asking the questions about the duration and then how it's progressed. And if they're doing a really good program, managing their loads really well, and they're continuing to have persistent symptoms and really struggling, you might then look at a scan to look for a couple of things. And it's more to understand the prognosis. So the things in scans that probably relate to pain are bone edema. So if someone has bone marrow edema on their scan, in the patellofemoral joint in particular, that's a sign that tells us they're probably going to take a while to recover. It's going to take them longer to to recover. Um, If we get a scan and it doesn't show that up, then that gives us a bit more insight that we can probably get this person there faster than that. Um, One of the other findings on an image, so if we find a meniscus tear, for example, um, we know that there's a high prevalence of meniscus tears in people who don't have pain and who never had pain. So it's close to one in two in people over the age of 40. We also know that if you do a meniscus surgery, so you do an arthroscopy, then that's no better than a placebo. So they do trials and they've done these in Scandinavia where you would go under anaesthetic and you would basically toss a coin, head you do the surgery, tails you don't, you've had the surgical incision. They send people on their way and it's not that the fake surgery is not associated with benefit, both people get better. So the point is that addressing that on image is probably not going to help people and there's many other factors like that. So that's why I'm a bit cautious about trying to, to look at imaging. But equally, you'll get a lot of patients that come to you with their imaging. And so you've got to talk through those things. And so having that conversation about, okay, you've got this meniscus tear. We know this about how that may or may not relate to pain. We know this about interventions that might address that. So maybe we won't worry about that too much. Um, you've got these osteophytes on your scan, but we also see those in people who have never had pain in their life. And if I see on that scan, okay, there's some bone edema, um, and that bone edema is on the lateral aspect of your patellofemoral joint, and your pain is on the lateral aspect of your patellofemoral joint, well, unfortunately, you're going to have a longer road to recovery, and we need to be really sensible about it. And that'll usually, again, tie into that spiking load. So that's a real whistle-stop thought process around imaging. Actually, Christian, on, on the bone marrow edema, um, what's actually going on there? Why are some people yeah. getting the bone marrow edema and some not? And, and... <coughs> Asking for a friend. (laughs) So it's interesting. Bone marrow edema can happen for a few different reasons, we think. And and it's really, we need to learn more about this. Um, But it's a load issue and it's usually a a load issue of too much load for that bone. So it's like you would get uh, a muscle injury, an overuse injury, an overuse tendinopathy. It's an overuse bone injury, essentially, or it's from a trauma. So we see bone bone edema following things like an ACL injury, traumatic knee injury. So that might be there. And, and that's a prognostic factor for how that well they do in the future. Um, in a runner, it'll either be, this is very clinical. This is very clinical. So what I see clinically, it's usually in a runner who's massively spiked their loads. And I can think of a runner at the moment who I'm seeing who's incredibly frustrated as an elite runner. And no, oh, she, I thought you were going to talk about me there for a minute. I can talk about you in a second if you like. Dave. <laughs> and no, actually, I might use you. You're, you're actually a good example for the next example. So I okay. might, might go to you. Dave. The, the non-elite, um, the non-elite example. Right? <laughs> but this this relatively elite runner at the start of COVID, at the start of lockdown, um, decided she wanted to do a lot more running. 
right? She wanted to get much fitter and much faster. She's trying to beat a lot of people in her field. And, and so she spiked her loads. And she just overloaded the bone for what it was capable of doing. And so it's not having recovery time. So over time, it breaks down like what a tendinopathy would and starts to become swollen. You've got inflammation in the bone. Unfortunately, because there's not great blood supply to a bone, it actually takes an incredibly long time for that to settle down sometimes. And there doesn't seem to be any magic bullet to be able to help that. Um, if you completely rest, it doesn't seem to help to settle that bone edema down. But if you continue to load it too much, it also doesn't help to settle that bone edema down. And so for a runner like that, we just have to educate them. Look, we can focus on strength and those types of things at the moment. Um, and we can try and do a little bit of running and we just have to monitor your symptoms. If it's getting worse after, after a couple of days after a run, then we aim to back it off. It's going okay, then we can continue on. And that's a case where you definitely don't want to be running consecutive days because it really makes it hard to understand how things are going on. So in short, the bone's overloaded. Now, in a case like yours, Craig, um, I'm going to ask you a question. How consistent is your training plan? Do you consistently run the same volumes each week? Up and down. <laughs> Up and down. So does your does your graph look like this steady increase like this or does it look more like a table rain? No, it, it's more <laughs> I, I, at the moment I'm trying to follow a three-week cycle, three, yeah. three weeks of going up and then a week's of really easy. But it's yeah. events so, get in the way of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what it ultimately comes down to, other people will develop this by doing far less running than the runner that I just talked about. They might go out and they try and run a 10K race or they start, their early training for a, for a marathon, right? So they might be 12 weeks into a training plan for a marathon. But in the three months or the six months prior to that training, they're doing next to nothing. So they're actually, their ability for their bone to take those loads is not there. It hasn't adapted. One of the great things about the human body is it is so adaptable, so, so adaptable. One of the really annoying things that doesn't fit with human nature is you have to be patient with that adaptation and it takes time. And unfortunately, most of us don't have that patience. So we see this bone edema. Again, this is just anecdotal, but it seems to happen from what I see in the clinic based on two things, either that runner who's consistently running and they massively spike their load really quickly, or it's based on someone who is very inconsistent with their running. So they have a period where they don't run and then they spike their running and then they get pain and then they stop and then they have a period of not running and they spike their running. And so it's all about just getting that consistency and giving the body time to adapt. And I can maybe touch on this in a minute, but how do we build more resilient cartilage that doesn't develop bone edema? We do it by actually running, but just not doing too much of it too quickly. That's the key thing. Yeah. Can we just sidestep away from bone edema and back into um, PFP, patellofemoral pain, for a while? Just because I think I'm right in saying it's it's probably the – the largest percentage of what most of us will see with our, with our clinical caseloads. And, and just to dial in on, on something you, you mentioned, Christian, about PFP almost being on a continuum, which at the end is, is sort of a patellofemoral joint uh, oh, um, OA. Oh, oh, is that a dog? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I just had a random dog come by and try and steal my phone. Superb. Um, <laughs> Uh, what was I saying? I can't remember. Yeah. So could we talk about um, the continuum of patellofemoral pain and patellofemoral OA and perhaps uh, if you've got any clinical gems as to how we could differentiate clinically with the, with the athlete in front of us, uh, whether we think uh, one is more, more likely to be the case than the other? 
Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that we need to differentiate between PFP and PFJOA. I don't think they're okay. all that all that different. I think that's important. I think you're more likely to have PFJOA if you've had anterior knee pain for a long period of time. Um, and I think if we use a clinical diagnosis of osteoarthritis, you, you would typically see things like morning stiffness starting to develop. So if you want to sort of differentiate, is this person just got PFJ pain or patellofemoral pain or is it starting to become more on the osteoarthritis spectrum? It's that runner who just gets pain with running. It's just going to be patellofemoral pain. But if it's starting to become problematic when they first get up in the morning, it's a bit stiff and those sorts of things, and that's unrelenting despite them having a period away from running and things, they're probably going more down the continuum of PFJOA. The main reason you might ask some of those questions is it's probably just going to be a longer recovery for that person. I think the thing we need to probably differentiate patellofemoral pain away from, which I see commonly mistaken in diagnosis, is patellotendinopathy. So you see a lot of people will come to me and they've got patellofemoral pain and they've been told they've got patellotendinopathy. Um, And that's sometimes the case initially. So they might develop their symptoms from doing a lot of jumping activities or a lot of sprinting and they develop patellotendinopathy initially. But then two years later, they've still got anterior knee pain and they hang on to this patellotendinopathy diagnosis but their tendon's not symptomatic anymore their tendon's not causing their problems because we typically only see tendon pain through really high rates of loading so it's more those high level activities like jumping sprinting those types of things if people are now only getting are now getting pain with things like walking down the stairs that's not likely to be their tendon that's causing their symptoms so that's a way in which you can differentiate that the reason that might have some importance tendinopathy versus patellofemoral pain is it might change a little bit about how you load some of your quadriceps muscles. So that's where that would become important because if someone has a tendinopathy, we typically don't want to load too heavy initially in deeper knee flexion. So when you're rehabbing, so you wouldn't want to be doing deep squats or, or leg extensions that maybe go through full range initially. Um, down the track as end-stage rehab for tendinopathy, we want to do that. In a patellofemoral pain condition, Actually, some of those deeper positions are sometimes not so bad as long as there's not that bone, that bone edema present that we talked about before. It's more so the terminal extension positions. So they'll describe pain at the end of a squat so as they get to the top or walking upstairs when they get to that extension position that might cause them pain. Um, and on a leg extension machine, it might be that last 20 degrees of knee extension where they might get their pain. So differentiating between those is probably more important than that continuum of PFJOA. Um, and I think just, I'm not sure how much we'll talk about rehab, but just to touch on leg extensions, when someone comes with anterior knee pain and they say they've been doing leg extensions and it's painful and they never want to do them again, et cetera, et cetera, and they've been told not to do them, that's not always good advice, by the way. Um, it's really important that we do load the quads at some point. So going back to the idea of what sort of rehab have they done in the past and do they need more input into their rehabilitation, if they've completely avoided quadriceps rehab and have had the condition for a long time, they need to go and see someone with some expertise to guide that in terms of the range of motion they might do the exercise in, um, how they might position themselves so that they can then target that, that quadriceps muscle. But sorry, we're talking about differential diagnosis. No, no, that's good. I think it's sensible for us to come on to management um, ultimately anyway. So let's let's bring up the, the, the sort of case of a, of, a, of a runner in front of us and based on our, our sort of history taking and, and all the things that we've talked about, you know, that you talked about, at the, you know, at the start that we should do. Let's say we've got a really high index of suspicion that we are dealing with patellofemoral pain. You know, a runner who reports that or finally reluctantly admits that they've been a bit um, 
silly with their training. They've made some training errors. You know, there's no other kind of flags that we've talked about. They're, they're complaining on pain, on exertion, maybe a little bit of latency or hangover type symptoms, a bit sensitive on stairs the morning after and a run. Yeah. Before we talk about what, what rehab looks like or should look like, it makes sense to me. Could we could we really highlight what bad management of that would look like um so what i mean by that is the things that we should probably be discouraged from saying ourselves but also when we are asking someone as we often would tell me what you've done so far how you know what are the things that, that we that we can hear and say okay that 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 hasn't been well managed that that doesn't look like what good rehab should look like sure so i think the most common let's call it bad rehab or bad management that we might see would be a sole focus on on physical or structural or passive approaches to, to management. Um, we can we can do things like take the patellofemoral joint and that can be incredibly helpful for reducing pain. Um, we can stick a foot orthosis under their foot and that can also be incredibly helpful for pain in the short term. The, the problem with those interventions and relying on them, if that's not the root cause of why they've developed their pain in the first place, because it is training errors, which is probably the more, most common reason, then what's going to happen is they're going to continue to have problems. They're going to continue to make those training errors um, and have issues with that. Um, the other thing about just focusing on passive treatments, if they've had the pain for a long period of time, we mentioned before that weakness is not necessarily a risk factor for developing pain. But once we have pain, we, we have pain there and that causes us to protect our system. And by protecting our system, we decondition it. So our cartilage is deconditioned, so that's one thing. But the more simple thing for us to think about as clinicians is the muscles are also deconditioned. So we're not talking just about the quadriceps here. We, we see hip muscle weakness develop over time in people with telephone pain. Research on distal muscle strength um, and muscle capacity is not really existent in the literature, but certainly anecdotally I see this in the clinic. If we look at a muscle like soleus, and I use a lot of seated heel rays to, to check what strength of soleus is, I might do a 10 repetition maximum for that. We see significant weakness in those muscles in our foot intrinsic. So our whole system becomes deconditioned. So when you're asking someone what they've done of their previous rehab because they've had pain for the past two or three years and they've been managing it, they keep taping, using orthotics, getting dry needling, manual therapy, all these other treatments. They feel better, they go back to running and their pain comes back. And we ask them what exercise they've been doing. If they haven't done progressive exercise to address those likely muscle deficits, then that's bad management. We're missing a really important thing related to that. If they haven't also received some education about the training errors that might be leading to them. So we'll go back to your example, Craig. So if you haven't been educated that that part of that gradual build-up and the, the cycle you described to me before is very sensible, and that's a really important element to get right, if you're not doing those types of things alongside other things, then that's also going to be bad management. So it's probably missing the load management education side of things. Um, and also then missing a good quality rehab program. And when we look at the evidence for managing patellofemoral pain, the strongest evidence is for exercise. So it's not actually for education load management, despite our bias towards that, um, many of our biases towards that. But equally, I keep that bias and I'll hold on to it. So I'll put those two things alongside equally. Sure. Chris, can I just ask you, a comment you just made then about uh, something, if I call it correctly, was that a lot of those with patellofemoral pain develop um, the, the hip weakness is that chicken or egg yeah so it's 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 a really good question but i go back to the thing and and the research is really clear in the hip in that hip muscle weakness is not a risk factor for the developing patellofemoral pain there's multiple studies that have shown that now but once you have developed patellofemoral pain 
you develop weakness in the hip. And so that's an interesting one because the hip is obviously not your symptomatic site. So you could argue that the quadriceps weakness that we see in people is just because of pain inhibition and they might not actually be weak, whereas the hip weakness is a true deficit or a true impairment. Or I don't, won't get caught up in terminology. It upsets some people depending what words you use, but they're weaker. So chicken or egg, I think the, the injury comes first or the, the pain comes first before the weakness develops in, in most cases, seems to be the case. Well, that doesn't mean that but a lot of people, sorry, just to touch no, on that, some people get this real obsession with we have to focus all of our treatments on risk factors. That's the key that's going to get people better. Now, that's true. We do need to address all the risk factors, but then there's different factors that lead to why people have persistent pain as well. And if we don't address those factors that are the reason someone has persistent pain, we may also struggle to get them better. So I don't think... Um, Prospective research tells us how to treat someone. Prospective research gives us insight into how we might prevent the injury in the first place or reduce the risk of injury in the first place. I think that's a really important differentiation to make. Um, while we're talking about biases, Christian, we will we'll come on to our biases, podiatrists, which is which are foot orthoses, of course. Um, and to your earlier point, you know, we see a lot of, of these poorly managed cases where people have come in and perhaps perhaps the clinician was thinking a bit too structurally or a bit too mechanically. So they've, they've uh, quite, quite appropriately and sensibly kind of come to the conclusion they're dealing with patellofemoral pain. They have read the, the literature, a lot of which you've personally published yourself, um, which tells them that foot orthoses um, are useful for pain. Uh, they've also kind of read the literature that says, okay, we need to, we need to address some strength deficits. And all that kind of on paper feels good. But I've seen so many people that when they've then attended a, to see a clinician, the message they've left with is my foot was in about I was given orthoses and I was given a crab walks. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just crudely summarizing here, but that tells me oh, that, that's, you know, that's a typical case. Yeah. Orthoses <laughs> and crab walks will fix everything. Right. But I mean, yeah. you know, the message sometimes directly from the clinician or perhaps it's just the interpretation of the patient because it wasn't well translated. The message has been my foot's in a bad posture and my hips are weak. And yeah. although on paper, what, what, what started off as a really evidence informed approach, you know, good, good, good management strategy somehow has morphed into what has ended up a bad strategy and possibly with, with a poor outcome. So I know you're, you're really big on, on research translation and dissemination. So it just feels like the right time to ask, you know, how do we just get better at this? Um, how do we get better? It's a really, really good, good question. Um, in terms of, I'm not sure where to go to answer this question. So if I talk about foot orthosis, it's a fun topic. Um, <laughs> I spent three and a half years of my life, a half of that time in a gate laboratory, trying to work out mechanisms of why foot orthosis might help people with telephone pain. Um, I can tell you from that experience that I can share very little insight on that <laughs> with you. But, no, but I think that's important to acknowledge. And, and I think one of the first things we need to be better at is acknowledging, and I think you guys do this really well, acknowledging we don't often know why foot orthosis helps someone with their pain we, we just don't know we can speculate and we can hypothesize different theories but we actually just don't know a lot of the time i think that's really important what i can share with you from um, my research i looked at a cohort of people with patellofemoral pain it was a little over 60 i think 62 people from memory and i gave them all the same prefabricated device and so we could we can make arguments about the optimal way to prescribe orthosis i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now but we gave them all the same device and it was a device broadly to try and reduce foot pronation, at least from a mechanical sense. Um, 
Now, we looked at a whole range of predictor variables. So we said, okay, which factors at baseline will tell us that someone is likely to do reasonably well with this intervention? And so we looked at foot posture. We looked at body mass. We looked at their age. We looked at their sex. We looked at um, their biomechanics. So we did 3D biomechanics with these people as well. We did some functional tests with and without the orthosis, a whole range of different things. And I can summarise my PhD in, in just a couple of lines, and that is that... A significant number of people with patellofemoral pain, and this is not running specific, these are all types of presentations, a significant number of people would benefit from foot orthosis. Um, and when you look at the number needed to treat <coughs> in that sort of six to 12-week period, so we're talking short-term, not 12 months, six to 12 weeks, the number needed to treat for a prefabricated device, which is not all that expensive, is somewhere between two and four, based on some really nice RCT evidence. So between two and four. So just think about that. That's not a very expensive intervention to have a really good chance of helping someone. And so my work tried to then look at, well, can we do it as a one-in-one? -one? We give this person and they get better and this person doesn't need it. The short answer is not really. The things that were related to better outcomes were if we put it in their shoe and they told us straight away that day that they felt better in terms of it was easy to do tasks like a squat and their pain was better with a task like a squat, they were far more likely to benefit at the end of that 12-week period compared to if they didn't. When we looked at foot posture, it told us nothing, absolutely nothing. It didn't give us any insight. We looked at uh, midfoot width and midfoot mobility and a whole range of other measures told us nothing absolutely nothing we did 3d motion analysis in a subset of these and that told us a little bit so there was a small relationship between peak rear foot eversion and whether someone come back and said yeah i seem to feel better after wearing those orthoses so that was some of the research we did um, when we look at other rcts in this space there's some research that's looked at medial versus lateral wedging and when you put it across the board, there's no difference in outcomes between those two treatments. Both of them probably help, um, and this is in a running-specific population. If we look at um, foot orthoses compared to a different intervention in a running-specific population, there's almost no research on this. So Jason Badacci did a really nice pilot RCT in, with an N of 8 in each group. There's some gender imbalances. I can't remember which way it went, but one group had eight males and the other group had four, or it might have been eight females and four and four, I can't remember, but there were some gender imbalances. But they compared foot orthoses, so these same ones with a number needed to treat of between two and four, so using a facility device customised for comfort. And then they compared that to a more of a gait retraining intervention of step rate. Um, and that step rate retraining was also facilitated by 20% of the time wearing vibrams, so minimalist shoes. So not all the time, 20%. I think that's really important to acknowledge. Now, the group who got the gait retraining intervention, they did much, much better than the group who got the orthoses. In fact, the running population who got the orthoses didn't really show a lot of improvements with that full orthoses device. I've found that study really interesting, even on an innovative each group, because it fit with my clinical bias in that I don't think orthoses help the running population all that much. Maybe in the short term, to maybe reduce their pain a little bit, but it's a bit hit and miss. But in the longer term, I don't think they make a difference. In someone who's standing all day or someone who's maybe on their feet and it's things like stairs, I think that's where they maybe play a little bit more of a role in this, pop in this population, in this condition. <clears throat> so back to your question, how do we get better at this? We have to know the evidence so that we can use that as a bit of a guide. And of course, then our own clinical reasoning. And I think we have to be honest with people that this is not going to fix 
your problem. This is not your foot is not the reason that you've developed this pain. It's because you've spiked your loads or because of the psychosocial factors we talked about before. But this is a really good tool that we could look at, we can try it, and we can see if it helps you. And if it helps you, let's use it as an adjunct over the next three months alongside the education and doing the exercise program to get you better. And I think that's how we need to, to kind of approach this. Sorry, long answer, but I did no. spend three and a half years on this. No, you're, you're absolutely welcome to, to talk more about that. Um, I think that's a, a lovely summary of, of essentially saying orthoses don't, you know, we see some people throwing them out as a, as a, as a intervention whatsoever. But what we're saying here is don't, don't issue them based on foot posture. Don't make promises they are trying to correct foot posture or change some kind of coupling mechanism, but see their value in reducing pain in the short and, term. Exactly. And if I just dive a little deeper, because I know everyone has their opinions and biases around why they think orthoses might help so i may as well just throw my two cents in um and craig's done a lot of uh great presentations i've seen about thinking about the force and how it controls force and you've done the same and rather than changing kinematics one of the other things that potentially we need to consider around an orthoses is it does change our foot position as soon as we change segmental positions of our joints that doesn't just change forces directly what it can also do is change the ability of some of our muscles to function as well and if you're at home and you're listening to this and you want to play around with this for a second if you stand up and you roll your feet into foot pronation so just flatten them down as much as you can and just feel what happens to your hips you'll typically go into some internal rotation especially if you go into a little squatting position so that's a mechanical kinematic sense but at the same time try and squeeze your bum so try and squeeze your gluteal muscles which we think are quite important for telephoneal pain and in that position, it's really hard to get those muscles to engage and to activate. Put yourself back into a more neutral position or even a slightly supinated position just to accentuate it. And then the same squatting motion obviously changes our kinematics, but equally try and engage your gluteal muscles. And in most people, it will be significantly easier to engage those muscles. So it may not be the kinematic change. It, that kinetic change that you guys have often talked about may actually come from an improved ability to use other muscle structures in the system. And our intrinsic foot muscles are the same. So in more pronated position, our intrinsic foot muscles are really difficult to get to function and to work. Whereas in a more supinated position, because they're a little bit shortened, much easier to use them. So in theory, we're going to be able to absorb loads better using those muscle structures at our hip and also at our foot. And that might be part of the reason they help pain as well. So just to throw a bit of thought processes in for people. Good. So, Craig, you, did I interrupt you? Were you going to ask something? Or... No, I was just going to say perhaps the way forward with foot orthoses is we, we need to press a bit of target them in this population. Yeah. Um, you did you did the comment you made earlier about the immediate pain relief and doing a squat. You know, you know we, we need, you know, like it's um, so we don't spend too much time going down a pathway that might not actually generate much of a return. Yeah, exactly. And I, I get the question all the time. People say, oh, should I wear my orthoses when I'm running and I just always ask them do you feel like it helps your pain and if they say yes and I say yeah continue to wear them if they say I'm not really sure I tell them to do some experimenting themselves because um, usually they're asking me because they don't think they're comfortable to run in or they make their shoes a bit heavier or whatever it might be and so there might be a reason to take them out for that and and then if they say yeah it helps my pain then yeah wear them but if it doesn't don't worry about it there's there's other things that we can focus on and I think when it comes to treating a knee and I've seen some terrible presentations at podiatry conferences. Equally, I've seen great presentations at podiatry conferences. <laughs> but I've seen some terrible ones trying to put all these mechanical concepts about how to customise a foot orthosis for someone with telephoneal pain. But you've got to draw a few links. If you're going to, if you're going to change something that's happening at your navicular, that navicular's got to change what's happening at your calcaneus. It's then got to change what's happening at your tibia and fibula. 
uh, tibia and fibula and then change what's happening at the telfemoral joint. So you've got to join a few dots to actually make a mechanical change and you may not even need to make that mechanical change. So I think we just need to be really careful with that. And it's not to say don't think about those biomechanical theories to guide what you do in the clinic because I think you've got to start with something and you've got to try something. So use those biomechanical theories but first and foremost, the most important thing is that patient saying to you, that feels better. Okay, cool. Let's run with that. If that patient says that feels worse, stop. Put your biomechanical biases aside and, and, and move past. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important. Let's, um, let's, let's move proximally, if, uh, if that's okay, which is podiatrists we're very nervous to do, of course. But um, we sort of joke, sort of flippantly mentioned crab walks earlier, you know, uh, some of my colleagues I work with, I'm very close with, who you know very closely as well, will often completely sarcastically sort of jibe each other that, you know, all I do is put something in someone's shoe, whereas all they do is give yeah. someone crab walks. And it did feel for a while to me like crab walks um, were, were kind of like the, the prefab of the hip. You know, it was just like, oh, let's just dish those out indiscriminately. Um, are they a reasonable starting point? I mean, clearly rehab is more nuanced and more tailored than that. But could, could you tell us a bit about what is good and bad management at the hip from a from a from a sort of home exercise program look like obviously it's a very tailored thing so i appreciate we're we're being a bit vague here yeah so if i start superficially and i'll start with evidence and i'll go into to less evidence base but still very important considerations so exercise targeting the hip is effective in cell pain so that's first and foremost when you look at the exercise programs in the literature they vary massively and so they'll use things like clams and crab walks they'll use things like standing hip abductions sideline hip abductions they'll go more proximally do things like planks there's a whole range of different exercises and some people will say this exercise is good this is bad this is good this is bad and one of the things like podiatry where we have different concepts and ideas around how orthosis should be prescribed, exercise is no different in the physio profession. And at the end of the day, it's probably just starting an exercise program is going to be helpful. So you're going to get some wins from doing that, just doing something different and, and changing and, and working on hip muscle capacity. What I like to think about with my patients, and, and running is no different to any other activity, is where does that person need to be strong? So in what position does their hip need to be strong to support their patellofemoral joint? And if someone's doing a really deep squatted crab walk, do they need to be strong down in that position for running? And my short answer is no, they do not need to be strong in that position for running. If they're playing squash or tennis, yes, great. But for running, they don't need to be strong. Where we need to be them to be strong is in a much more upright position. So a better exercise, if you want to change a crab walk into a, a better exercise for a runner, do it standing up tall with a really soft knee bend and then go back to the idea of well, which muscles are we targeting that are going to help. And so I like crab walks because you can do crab walks well and you can do them poorly. Um, and if you're doing that crab walk in a lot of anterior pelvic tilt, so you've got your bum stuck out, which is what a lot of people do. The reason people say to do that is when you look at EMG studies, you get higher EMG activation with gluteal muscles um, when you do that. The problem is in people with knee pain, EMG completely changes around and muscle function changes. And if someone's weaker through that area of their gluteal muscles, you won't get higher EMG function, you won't get higher activation through the gluteal muscles. You'll use a lot more anterior hip and lateral thigh. So when a lot of people with patellofemoral pain are doing crab walks, they're in that deep squatter position with their bum stuck out, they're not strengthening their glutes all that well at all. They're actually often strengthening their TFL, anterior hip muscles, lateral quads. So what I tend to try and focus on with people, whether it's 
or I don't prescribe crab walks, right? But I will sometimes modify because they love crab walks. They've been doing, they've been told they're great. I'll modify <laughs> how they do them. I'll say, let's keep doing that exercise because you know it. I don't have to teach you a new skill, but let's stand upright a little bit more. Let's tuck your bottom under a little bit more and make sure you're engaging and using your gluteal muscles. So back to your initial question, what should we do at the hip? First and foremost, we need to make sure that our exercise prescription is targeting the right muscle. So that's a good example. So if you're doing that crab walk and you're not feeling load through your gluteal muscles, then you're not targeting the right muscle. Clams would be the same. But then go a bit more detailed and then be working on specific ranges. So another exercise would be a bridge. And this is a great exercise for screening and a great exercise for exercise prescription. So you can do bridges two ways. Primarily, you can do a long lever bridge where you're foot is up on a chair that's going to be more hamstring biased and you can do a short lever bridge with your foot on the floor which will be more gluteal biased so you'll see in a lot of people they might do four bridges so short lever bridges for many many months and then when you test them and you check how they're doing them there's a couple of things that happen one is they're getting very little gluteal activation so they're getting a lot of hamstring with it and their gluteal muscles are not not actually doing a lot of the load. So is that achieving the gluteal strength that we want it to? It's not. So we might need to do some cueing to make that happen. And then the second thing is goes back to that idea of where does that runner need to be strong? They may be able to get up sort of halfway with a single leg bridge. So they might be just single leg bridges, they get up halfway. That's not very helpful for running because that halfway movement is going to be probably associated with things like overstride reaching in front. We need that person to be strong pushing their hips up nice and high and actually getting into some hip extension with that exercise. So you'd be making sure that they're using their gluteal muscles and also able to get through full range. <clears throat> I like, I really like when we think about the hip, the hamstring, because I think the hamstring is one of the most important muscles. So we haven't talked much about gait analysis, but one of the things that is really important in an injured runner is to try and improve their ability to land closer under their hips so that they get lower braking forces perhaps the most important muscle to do that is our hamstrings. So hamstrings, of course, act at the hip and act at the knee. And by doing a long lever bridge, you can ensure that someone can actually get, again, full range. So if they do a single leg bridge on a chair and they can't lift up more than a few centimetres, it's going to be very difficult for that person to do things like increase their cadence or land closer under their hips. And so that's a really good screening tool. So I know a lot of your listeners are podiatrists, but they'd be too little clinical tests of strength that I'll use is those long and short lever bridges and making sure that they can get their gluteal muscles activating in a position of short lever and making sure they can get full range in both of those exercises. And if they're really struggling with those things, they've probably got a lot to gain from doing good exercise rehab program. And then, of course, you can measure lateral hip strength and a whole range of other things as well. Yeah. Uh, You've just reminded me we need to talk about gait retraining. Um, You know, um, so many things we need, so many facets to this, aren't there? But, you know, again, an area where I know you've got a lot of experience, expertise, and, and you've done a lot of work. Um, to, to, to crudely summarise my interpretation of the literature, again, we're not suggesting there is a perfect stride length or a perfect cadence. But what we do know from the literature is that when you have a sensitive knee, particularly, you know, patellofemoral pain, anterior knee pain, adopting a shorter stride length, usually achieved by increasing the cadence um, seems to be very favorable. Is, is that a reasonable interpretation of the, the body of work out there? Yeah, I think, I think certainly increasing your step rate or cadence anecdotally can be very helpful. There's not, a lot of, there's not actually a lot of evidence to suggest that it does help pain. Um, there's plenty of evidence to suggest it reduces knee joint loads. So that's, that's really clear, um, which in theory would help pain. Um, but of course, if you 
didn't do all the other things we've been talking about, you'd struggle. I think one of my annoyances with gait retraining, and this is exercise, and I know you guys share this with foot orthoses. Like if I told you I've done a foot orthoses intervention and it worked, or a foot orthoses intervention and it didn't work, that doesn't actually tell you much, does it? Because that could be so many different things. Exercise is the same. I've done an exercise program targeting the hip. And we won't have time to go through this, but there's so many exercise programs in the literature that claim to do strength. And they're not strength training programs because they're too short. They're not dosed appropriately, et cetera. And so you've got people jumping up and down on social media saying strength doesn't work for this because there's 10 studies that say that. But none of those 10 studies have looked at the strength training program. So we can't make that conclusion. So that's that. And so gait retraining is the same because we have this holistic or overarching um, phrase of gait retraining. And what does gait retraining mean? So if gait retraining is step rate and that person doesn't need or changing their step rate won't help them, then we're not really getting very far. For some people, gait retraining will extend to changing stripe pattern as well, which can be, frankly, can be dangerous to do for some people. We may actually cause new injuries as a result of that. And I know you guys have talked about this stuff lots. Um, But equally, it can also be therapeutic. And if I was going to pick an intervention to reduce the load most on the knee between those two things, I would choose changing strike pattern, but equally that would be the most risky thing to do as well. And then there's a whole range of things that just have not been researched in the literature. So I actually spend most of my time with patients working on things like pelvic positioning and trunk positioning to improve, like I talked about before, the ability to actually get gluteal muscles to function and our abdominal muscles and core muscles to function and reduce stress and load on the knee that way. And I find that that's very safe for people we don't cause other injuries like we do with strike pattern and it also is often very effective at reducing people's pain and sometimes that's just short term as well so sometimes it might be just a short-term change and then we might change them to a certain position of their trunk uh, from where they were and then they land up somewhere in the middle and that's okay so i think that's the first thing we have to be really careful about saying this is what gait retraining is because it can be many different things um, the other thing that's probably really important about gait retraining is not changing things that don't need to be changed. That's, that's really important. And, and so, and keeping it safe. So when I look at someone's running mechanics, I try and focus on the sagittal plane. Most of our stresses come from there. So we very much get obsessed with looking at frontal and transverse plane. So we look at foot pronation, hip adduction and pelvic drop. But the sagittal plane is where most of those forces come from. And if we can reduce sagittal plane motions or change that, that'll typically change frontal and transverse plane motions. So if you can reduce the stride length, as we talked about before, so land closer to your centre of mass, you don't need as much foot pronation, hip adduction, pelvic drop to absorb loads. So you typically see those things change already. So that tends to be my focus is, is looking at those things. Um, and so I have a analogy I often use, and I share this with patients all the time, and I've written an editorial. I don't know if you guys have show notes. I can send a bunch of stuff you can whack on the Facebook page. But yeah. it's the concept of risk. So when we're looking at gait retraining, there's different categories we can look at. So we can do something like reduce overall load, and that's changing our landing position. So get landing closer to our center of mass. We can improve our capacity to absorb load. And so we can do that a few different ways. We can do that through strength and conditioning work and exercise, gradual building up of our training. And then we can also do that by sometimes just neuromotor cues, so getting people to engage their lower abdominal muscles or their gluteal muscles. Don't do that if you run around like you've got to stick up your backside, right? But sometimes if someone has the capacity to do it, that can be really helpful. You can actually get them landing softer. And then we can shift load. And shifting load would be strike pattern. That's a really simple example. Um, so if we go through those categories, 
and shifting load is probably the most dangerous and the one we need to think about the most carefully, probably the last one we should use. If we can reduce overall load, that's going to be the first thing that we're going to do. <clears throat> and then improving capacity, well, that really mostly comes down to not gate retraining. It comes mostly down to exercise and gradually building up running. So I tend to stick to that R and I. And the, for the K, for everyone's reference, is we keep adapting to that person in front of us and where they're at with their training and a whole range of things. So that's a nice way I like to think about it. In terms of how to make the changes, so you mentioned about step rate being a good starting point, and I think it is, but some people have a lot of difficulty changing their step rate, and the reason is they don't have the muscle capacity to do it. So if you ask someone to increase their step rate and their muscle power through their hamstrings is really poor, they just can't do it. It's really hard for them to do it, and in fact, sometimes they end up landing heavier, and you've, I'm sure some of you have seen this out there if you step rate. I guarantee you if they, you give them a step rate cue, they land heavier, they're having a lot of difficulty with it, and you put them on the long lever bridge on the chair that I just mentioned before, they'll have a lot of difficulty with that task because that's a sign that they just don't have the hamstring capacity to do it. So the reason I bring that up as an example is you're very, very foolish to try and change gait if the person doesn't have the capacity to do that. So that's where the exercise part becomes really important. So a lot of people say, should we do gait retraining or exercise and let's compare them? And Brad Neal, who you know very well, and we had lots of great conversations about this through his PhD, doing them separately doesn't make sense to me. We need to do them together. So you need to do an exercise program to build the capacity to actually make those gait changes. And then the obvious one then is why would you change strike pattern if you don't have the distal foot and ankle capacity to do it? You need to work at that. That takes a long time. Why would you change trunk position that I'm talking about and pelvic position if you don't have the muscle capacity to do it? So you often need to do a good exercise program leading into doing that. And then arguably you may not need to then change the gait pattern, but then we can talk about performance. We probably won't have time to go through that too much today. Yeah. Can I can I just ask a question, Christian, just to slight sidetrack, this whole issue of like, and I hate the term, the functional exercise, and the, the example I often use is, yeah. um, and I'm, ask, I'm asking this for a friend who is sitting in a, um, say, say like working on the quadriceps, so sitting in the machine with the weight and lifting the leg up and down versus doing lunges, perhaps holding a hand weight. So. Yeah. What's what, what's the difference there, or, or one preference sure. over the other, or yeah, sure. So the mo the most functional exercise for a runner is running. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to practice movement patterns and movement skills and those sorts of things, we run. In terms of strength, so what's the best way to approach strength? Because I think this is where you're going with it. Is a lot of yeah. a lot of people say, oh, you need to do functional strength, or there's no yeah. point doing it. <clears throat> now, if you do a closed chain exercise like a squat or a lunge and you've got significant quadriceps atrophy and weakness, and that's what we're trying to target. We're trying to target the quadriceps. Doing a functional closed-chain exercise is not a sensible way to target the quadriceps because your brain works out the most efficient way to do something, and the most efficient way to do something is not to use your quadriceps because you don't have any strength or capacity there. So it uses every other muscle it can to coordinate that movement. So it'll use your hip, it'll use your back, it'll use your calf, it'll use everything else. So... Um, in terms of an exercise to change function, sometimes the best exercise to change function beyond doing that actual function is to do a more isolated, targeted exercise at the weakest link in the chain. So your leg extension exercise you described then, Craig, if that's the weakest link in the chain, that is the best exercise to target that. That's really important. And if you've got, equally, if you've got a lot of hip muscle weakness, and you're doing crab walk. So go back to that example before and you're doing crab walk, you're doing gluteal muscle weakness. That might not be the best exercise to do. You may be better 
to try and do some non-weight-bearing gluteal exercise and starting to use resistance bands and loading it up that way as a starting point. And you can actually do some really heavy loading of your gluteal muscles if it's taught well and then progress it into weight-bearing positions later. So once you've addressed your quadriceps weakness, Craig, on the leg extension and you're going great with that, then squatting is probably the best exercise to maintain that going forwards because you can not only target your quads, you can target a lot of other things at the same time. Yeah, no. no, that makes sense. Now, the, the, the second question is one Toby asked, and he, he says he thinks he's asking a stupid question, but I, I actually think it's, a, it's, it's probably quite a good question. What exactly do people mean when they say engaging muscles? It's a great, it's a great question. So in physio, we got really obsessed with this, really, really obsessed with this. So trying to engage our transversus abdominis and trying to engage our VMO. And so it's really just the concept is trying to teach people motor patterns. So trying to teach people to activate this muscle before that muscle. In short, Toby, you, you, you can't do it. You can't do it very well. That's for sure. And I spent a lot of time in undergraduate learning how to do it and my first couple of years practicing it. So I think that's, that's, that's the first thing. So what you can do instead of thinking about timing is you can make sure that certain muscles work and, and you use them. So I'm going to give you a really practical example to have a go at here, Toby, so you can, can try this. If you've, Got some, you don't have to do this now if you don't have the equipment, but if you've got some TheraBand there and you're whacking around your ankles and you're in standing and you hold onto a wall, stand on your left leg and take your right leg out to the side. So you're just moving your right leg to the side. If we wanted you to use your left gluteal muscles, so your left hip muscles, it might happen automatically. It might just go bang and it works and that's fine and that's, that's great. In a lot of people who have persistent pain, let's say you've got left knee pain, we might find that you don't use your left gluteal muscles when you're doing that exercise and you, most people have awareness of whether they're feeling some muscle burn in that area. And so if we're trying to teach someone to engage their muscles, what we might do is we might get them to just squeeze their bum while they do that exercise so that they're consciously thinking about doing it um, or tuck their bottom under a little bit to do it. And you typically might, do that for a couple of sessions and then once you've got that motor patterning working and it's going well then we would load it up and start to make it really heavy but you've got to get that patterning right first otherwise you might just end up strengthening a different muscle in that hip um, or different area of muscle in that hip so that's hopefully that answers the question a little bit from a running perspective I mentioned as an example before to improve capacity to absorb load. We've got another dog um, <laughs> to absorb load um, <laughs> This one didn't try and steal my phone, so that's good. Um, we might use it as an example to, uh, to to improve capacity to absorb load, but I would rarely use it in running populations. Sometimes it can be helpful, and I might get someone to just think about engaging your lower tummy a little bit, and that would only be if they've got really good capacity to do that. And You don't want them running around like they're going to stick up their backside, but sometimes it just tunes them into using that area. So we're not trying to get the patterns perfect and right. It's just getting them to maybe use that area of muscle or that muscular um those muscular structures more than their knee muscles for example so sometimes just using those cues so they wouldn't use them wholeheartedly and, and all the time but they can be worthwhile brilliant i'm conscious of the clock and craig starts getting itchy yeah. when we get to an hour so I'll, I'll try and summarize i feel like we've given the listeners a really good um sort of uh, you know real good sort of scattergun approach of the sort of things to ask in a history, uh, how to sort of try and differentiate probably the most common knee pains or knee sensitive knee pathologies, if that's the right word to use, in runners. We talked about distal intervention and, and perhaps when to do it and what we're trying to achieve. We talked a bit about proximal intervention and rehab. We touched on on gate retraining a little bit. And I think it feels like to me the 
the, the one thing you can't miss out, whatever way you try and approach these patients is, is that is that training error load management slash kind of, you know, getting people not not just behaving like maniacs, because no matter what you do, no matter what you put in their shoe, what, what glute exercise you give them, if you just don't address that side of things, it feels like you might not make the progress you want. Have you got anything in the show notes you could sign posters to? I know you've done loads of work on, you know, educating patients, anything that, that, that people could read or even better. I, I feel like you and Michael Rathliff worked on a handout for patients, um, although that may have been a different population. Yeah. So I was going to touch on one thing from your synopsis. Also, don't forget about the less obvious non-physical things as well. So yes, the psychosocial side. You're right. Yeah. 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 No, it's really, it's really, it often gets neglected. Um, <laughs> in terms of show notes, I've, I've got, yeah, there's the education leaflet, which we have in multiple languages. It's very biomechanical focus. We've actually done a bunch of work in recent times on developing a, a website for patients. And actually we have a version of that freely available now and we published it as part of a trial recently so we haven't shared it all that widely we are still doing another <laughs> trial wait and see so we haven't tested it as much as we'd like but it's probably it's more comprehensive than the leaflet so i'll share that with you so it's called right. mykneecap.trekeducation.org there's a whole bunch of infographics and, anim- and animation videos and podcasts and things there targeted to patients about a lot of the concept we've talked about today and then we also have a website through the Trek platform that we've set up for, for clinicians as well. So I'll share that with you too. And that should be a good starting point. Um, Perfect. That'd be great. great yeah, really sure. appreciate uh, we that. Can, we can link to those. But look, I think we have to wind up there. But thanks so much, Christian, for giving up your time. You can get back to your run. Um, yep. loved, loved hearing the birds in the background. I keep looking outside out my window. But um, So yes. look, thanks, thanks, Christian, and thanks, Ian. Thanks, Christian. Cheers, mate. Thanks, guys.